This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your potential, then this show is for you. I'm Sheena Badani. And I'm Devin Reed, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Forecasting. It's something every sales team has to do, but most teams miss the mark, and sometimes by a lot. At Gong, we've been super focused lately on how we can help revenue teams with this problem, and we've developed a solution, Gong Forecasting, the first reality-based forecasting tool to hit the market. John Lorang is currently the SVP of RevOps at Kipu Health, a healthcare software solution. In this replay conversation, John shares how in his last position as VP of Sales Ops at Point Click Care, he got his team to a forecasting accuracy of 3%. Impressive, right? Stay tuned for his story and actionable takeaways. And if you're interested in learning more about our brand new product, Gong Forecast, head over to gong.io forward slash forecast to add reality and accuracy to your forecast. Now, on to the show. John, I appreciate you hanging out with us. Welcome to Reveal. I'm really excited to talk about today's topic because it's forecasting. Uh, some people love forecasting. Some try to avoid forecasting or have their own unique, uh, you know, under-promise, over-deliver strategy. But today, we're going to talk about some secrets you have around forecasting with exceptional accuracy. Uh, but they won't be secrets for long. Before we get into all of that, though, you're the VP of sales operations at Point Click Care, uh, but you're also a PhD. What is your PhD in and how does that relate to the work that you do today? So uh, I might be setting you up for disappointment because there is like absolutely no connection between what I studied in school and what I do now. Some things crossed over in terms of skills, but there's like in terms of subject matter, absolutely no connection. So what I studied in school, I did a PhD on medieval economic history. So what I was studying are the laws around lending money in the Middle Ages. So in the Middle Ages, there was a religious prohibition against lending money at interest. As you know, no one will lend money unless they lend money at interest. So the book I wrote was basically how people try to get around this law. So what I had done is I edited a, a confessor's manual which was intended to instruct priests how to elicit confessions from people who actually did this, lent money and interest, and tried to detect it. Kind of a little bit interesting economic sort of historical thing mixed in with a little bit of religion. Like I say, in terms of the subject matter, could not be farther away from what I do today. Okay, well, I'm curious, what was like the most common or maybe the most interesting way that you learned people would try to swerve around the no interest law? There were a lot of ways. A lot, one of them was in the dowry. So they would kind of bake uh, an interest-based loan into the dowry when you got married. Another one was they did speculation on futures uh, for grain. So they would do, do loans that way where they would kind of give you money up front when you were about to plant the crops. And then they would collect more money when you actually harvested them. So they would kind of hide those you know, usurious loans that way. But there's, there's a million different ways they did it. They're all, you know, interesting, but I don't want to use up the whole interview talking about medieval history because trust me, I could. We could do an entire episode on that. We really could. <laughs> we, we, we definitely could. Uh, it's good to know people have been essentially evading taxes or, you know, banking rules for centuries, not just today. How would you take some of those skills, right? Surely you have some like analytical st skills uh, from that experience. How has that 
parlayed over to the world of sales and sales ops? So when I was doing all of that work, it was a lot of really heavy duty analytical work. And especially when you, when you edit a manuscript, you have to learn the discipline of paleography and the discipline of paleography involves something called collation, right? So you're trying to go from versions of the manuscript that exist today to reconstruct how it was originally written. Because in the Middle Ages, everything was written and copied by hand. So you can imagine in the, in the modern world where everything can be typed and copied and pasted, how many times do you get broken telephone? You still get quite a bit of broken telephone. Now imagine where there's no emails and everyone is literally writing everything by hand. Imagine how much more broken telephone you get, right? So you have to reconstruct the original text. It's comparing so many things left to right to find out, okay, what are the differences? What are the similarities? And how do I get back to some original insights from that, right? That was what I think really got me started as an analyst. So, you know, the beginning of an operations career is as an analyst. It's being able to pour through thousands of rows of mind-numbingly boring data to find that one little discrepancy or that one little insight that you can really extract from all that. And it's a patience thing. It's an attention to detail kind of thing. It's an endurance thing, right? Being able to just keep going and going and going and find those things. And I think really that's one of the things I took away from it, as well as, you know, an interest in and a curiosity to sort through problems like that. I think in operations, you have a lot of problems that other people find boring or, you know, you smash your head against the wall trying to sort them out. You have to have that mentality saying, I want to go find the answer in this massive chaotic data. Well, you said endurance, which sales is definitely an endurance sport. Uh, and you said attention to detail, which definitely links us into our topic for today, which is forecasting. So forecasting is something that I will say every sales team I've been on has either been bad to okay at. And that's not a knock on the team. I think it's something that's just genuinely very hard to get right. Why do you think that is? You can draw an analogy to the SDR function, right? So why was the SDR function created? So, you know, I'm talking about sales development representatives. I'm sure everyone who listens to this probably knows the history of it, but I'll recap it in five seconds in case they don't. So originally account executives did all their work, right? They, they prospected, they got their own clients and they tried to convert them and close them. Then a genius who worked at Salesforce, this guy named Aaron Ross, he comes by and he says, they're not as effective as they could be. They really suck at finding opportunities. Account executives are closers, right? They love to work deals to completion. They're not good at finding the deals. So he says, hey, what we're gonna, guess what? We're gonna create a team of people that all they do is prospect. And they're gonna prospect and hand off opportunities to account executives to advance and close. So he did that because account executives are not built by nature to do that well. And I think you can apply the same thing to forecasting. So sales reps and sales directors are not built by nature to do that exercise well. That's the part of the job that most of them like the least. They want to be working deals. They want to be advancing opportunities. They want to be generating new opportunities. That's where they want to spend all day, every day. And if we could leave them to do that all day, every day, you know, God bless them and they would be all successful. But the forecast, unfortunately, has to be done one way or another, right? So that's why I think, honestly, they struggle with it is because they don't want to invest time in it. And it's not a knock against them. It's like asking someone, you know, who's an expert at playing football to go be a ballerina. It's just not something they're built to do. So I think that's why they struggle with it quite, quite often. And now you've been at Point Quick Care for, I think, over three years. Paint a little bit of a picture of like, what did forecasting look like when you first joined the organization? 
So when I joined Point Click Care, they really didn't have a sales operations function. So sales operations was part of business operations and they kind of served the entire company. So what they found was sales was getting short shrift. And the, the forecast, you know, we had a, a senior vice president of sales at the time who, who really took on a ton on his own back and, you know, too much, frankly, on his own back. He was handling the whole forecasting exercise on his own. So he's literally spending hours on hours every month preparing the forecast for every single sales director, for every single sales rep. This was, you know, kind of crazy, right? So we had to go from that to something better than that. And I think that's a key thing to a key theme I've definitely noticed in my career is when operations is successful, yes, as much as we want to get to kind of like a crystal palace in the end where everything is perfect, it takes so long to get there that really success is how did we make it a little bit better than yesterday, but we changed it like the next day, right? So first step from there was going to listen, SVP, you shouldn't have this all on your back. Let's go to a standard, at least a standard bottoms up forecast methodology where the sales reps forecasted the directors, the directors forecasted their VPs and the VPs forecasted the SVP. And that way you're not having to manage you know, a forecast for, let's say, 60 plus field reps, right? You're having to manage a forecast for three VPs that report to you. And that was really the first step is just getting a very basic bottoms up weekly, monthly, quarterly forecast cadence going. That was that was really the start of all of it at Point Click Care. I, I like the first, the, to me, this sounds like phase one. I have a feeling more phases are coming and, and it reminds me of something you mentioned earlier. You're like, I'm going through handwritten transcripts, right? One by one playing the game of telephone. And you kind of just described a game of telephone, right? Rep to manager, manager to director. And I know things sometimes get lost in translation. After you'd kind of finished phase one, what were some of the challenges that kind of sprouted out from that? And how did you kind of go to build phase two? When you're working with a bottoms up human generated forecast, right? From people, I think and again, it's not a knock on people. It's just a natural inclination, right? So one thing you'll hear a lot of sales, a lot of in sales, which is a good saying, but also can contribute to bad behaviors and forecasting is you never forecast less than the quota, right? So if you're a sales director and you're forecasting less than the quota, it's, it's a bad mark. However, there are times legitimately when you're going to be under the quota. And I think that's what we saw a lot when we were doing a bottoms up human derived forecast is people were massaging the numbers to get if not to the quota or past the quota at least as close to it as possible and there wasn't a lot of oversight on that time and the underlying data behind it right there wasn't a lot of ability to check it at the very beginning because the operations function was so nascent so you rely a lot of people's kind of subjective call of the sales forecast and that subjective call includes their, you know, we used to call it the aspirational forecast, which is not supported by data. It's like, I'm going to get to the quota. And then how are you going to do it? Well, the deals don't exist today, but I'm going to find them. And, you know, if the forecast is off, it, a lot of the stuff downstream doesn't work, right? And that's that's what we were finding is we didn't have accurate data to do future planning. So I think that's, that's where we identified, okay, we have a need to move beyond this human-based bottoms up forecast process. And again, nothing against the people that do it. It's just, again, you're asking people to do something that really maybe it's not the best thing to ask them to do. I've been there. I mean, it's, it's hard, right? You know, if you're going to, you know, your forecast says 88%, uh, maybe just nudge it up to 98%. Uh, maybe some good fortune happens. Maybe a deal gets a little bit larger, but it's kind of natural, right? Like, of course, you're going to want to, you know, project a little bit more. And you also know, it makes, it makes things smoother for you. 
the thing that I was thinking about is like you are building this forecast on this foundation, which as we talked about is like based on like manual processes and their own subjectivity. Like what kind of guidance did you provide the reps in terms of them creating their own forecasts bottoms up? Because everything is built on top of that now. Yeah. So I think once we, it's always an iterative process. So we introduce the bottoms up forecast process. We start looking at forecast accuracy. Forecast accuracy is a little bit all over the place because of that human element. So the first step from there then was to get them focused on the metrics that should be driving their forecast. So for example, obviously your forecast should be pipeline derived, right? If you don't have pipeline to support your forecast, why are you forecasting that you're going to post, you know, $10,000 in recurring revenue when you have $8,000 worth of pipeline? Even if you had $10,000 worth of pipeline, I wouldn't be forecasting $10,000 worth of bookings because you don't win every single deal. So we're starting to get them focused on those key metrics. And as much as we like to do fancy things with the data, I found in my career, constantly going back to the basics is really effective. So talking to reps about their win rate. So for example, win rate and pipeline multiple, right? Those are two basic, really basic concepts. So if you go to a rep and you say you have a 50% win rate, which is, you know, industry standard is actually pretty good. That means you need at least 2x pipeline, right? You need at least $2 for every $1 worth of bookings to come in. And then that clicks for them, right? And they start saying, okay, that's what I can forecast. So if I have only one-to-one coverage, I'm not going to meet my quota. I'm going to be at half, right, of my quota. And then they start to gut check it themselves. And obviously, we're gut checking it for them in operations when the forecast starts coming through. And you get some, some improvements to forecast accuracy there as well. I think where you start then hitting the limitation is there's only so much time and interest that a rep has to go deep into their pipeline metrics, their historical deal metrics to produce a really accurate forecast. And to be honest with you, like if, if they mess up their forecast on the positive side where they crush the number they gave to us, it doesn't help us with planning, but we're, we're less kind of merciless to punish them because like you're doing a good job. You're just terrible at forecasting because you don't like it and don't spend a lot of time doing it. There's that point in a rep's head where I've, I, the time I'm now, you know, spending on the forecast, I could just spend generating pipeline or, or making that forecast better. And so it is hard to, to maintain that. I want to go back for a second, John, and tell me, uh, m- maybe you have the number, maybe you don't. So it's, it's understandable if you don't. But, you know, we started this with, you know, SVP doing everything manually. Do you know uh, about, even if it's like a bracket of like about what the um, accuracy was, like 5%, 10, 20% accurate? Because it was one person handling so much data, it was kind of like a plus or minus 20% swing, right? There's only so much one person can do with that much data. Honestly, I'm pretty impressed. It was only 20. If it was me, it would have been, I was, I have, you know, 50%. I don't know. Flip a coin. So now we got to, we went to bottom up, right? So now we're talking about manual entry. Reps are doing what you just described. Do you remember what, like, how, how did the variance increase or, or decrease from that point? So there wasn't actually, to be honest with you, a tremendous improvement there. Uh, I think the SVP really took a lot of time preparing to forecast. He took it very seriously. So he took it as far as one person can take it, right? So, you know, we saw maybe some incremental improvement, maybe about 5%. So it was, you know, you're still kind of off by 15% on either side. Creating a forecast can feel a bit like a lost skill among all the other activities that sales teams are focused on today. Yet it leads to success in your role and for the business. Stats we found were shocking when it comes to the pain companies experience related to 
accurate forecasting. According to Miller-Hyman Group, fewer than 20% of sales orgs have forecasting accuracy of 75% or greater. Another stat from Gartner is that less than 50% of sales leaders and sellers have high confidence in their organization's forecasting accuracy. Yet, sales teams that leverage a formal and a structured forecasting review process increase their win rates by 25% versus those that take a less formal approach. Thanks again to Miller-Hyman for that stat. With that backdrop, let's get back to the conversation with John, and I'd suggest grabbing a pen and some paper for this next bit, as he shares quite a bit about what forecasting looks like today for point-click care. So we still run bottoms up because people who have good ideas, they deserve to have their good ideas replicated, right? So a really good idea that they use at Salesforce is they have a machine-based forecast that constantly gut checks the bottoms up forecast. They always run them in parallel. And the reason it's important to run them in parallel is because, especially at the sales director and VP level, the accuracy of your bottoms up forecast reflects your understanding of the business. So we run both and the, the uh, leaders have access to both sources of information. So when you're talking about what's the process like now, we still on a monthly basis only pull in a bottoms up forecast to get out those kind of, you know, intangible aspects of the forecast, things changing in month, right? Things the computer doesn't catch because they're happening in the moment. But in addition to that, what we layer on is a machine-based forecast. So at the beginning of every month, we project for the forecast for the next 90 days. So what does that mean? There's a pretty extensive business intelligence framework of reports I've developed. I can extract pipeline and process it as well as project pipeline generation from the past into the future. So on a very basic level to pair your forecast, you're going to start with what you know, right? So what I know is the existing pipeline. So you extract the existing pipeline. We slice it on a, a number of, of metrics. Like our, our forecast is pretty crazy detailed, um, which is another reason why it was very difficult for people to do because you're slicing it by market, by geography, by size segment within that geography. And they're asking, you know, for example, one of the products we sell is practitioner engagement. So how much practitioner engagement will you sell in Tennessee to skilled nursing facilities in the next 90 days? That's the question that has to be answered. You can imagine for a person that gets pretty difficult to get down to that level of granularity. So another issue we had is, is you know, maybe their forecast starts getting close to accurate on the aggregate but their allocation of it to geography, market, and size segment, they're guessing. There's no way a person can do this, right? I remember, you know, I won't name the person, but the VP I was working with, he said, we're just throwing darts at the board. That's it, right? That's, that's all he said. That's the most they could do. So when you're working with the actual historical data and the pipeline data, all those dimensions exist. So in the open pipeline, they're there already, I extract them. You extract the open pipeline, you weight it. So we're weighting it according to stage and age. So that gives you kind of a percentage conversion of that open pipeline. The other side of it is you take how much pipeline is going to be created in that period that doesn't exist today. And of that pipeline, how much of it will convert to bookings within that 90 day period. So you can use your historical background, right? So you, you know, we vary the range. It depends, right? If big events happen, if we have a sales restructure, I change the historical range. If the market shifts, right? I change the historical range. For example, if we see different sales drivers coming into play, we had a large surge of new business at the beginning of the year that started to 
peter off towards the end of the year and then the wallet share business was increasing so you pick your range based on that element has some human judgment so a human being looking at the data but you pick your historical range extract it that will tell you how much pipeline will be generated in the future based on what's been done in the past you take your deal metrics from the past your average length of sale and your win rate for every product sliced on all those dimensions so i can tell you what is the win rate for practitioner engagement in Arizona for skilled nursing for two to five facilities. We have enough data that I can actually tell you that. You take that win rate, you take, you apply it to the pipeline generation. So you basically you take the create date, you add the average length of sale, you take the MRR projected, you multiply it by the win rate, and that gets you booking at a specific period of time. Add that together with your open pipeline, that produces your forecast. So machine-based forecast, right? That doesn't have that level of subjectivity. It doesn't have that temptation to say, I'm going to call it quota. It says, no, this is reality. So this is based on what you already have sitting out in the pipeline, plus what you are likely to create and convert within that time period. Add that all up and you get your forecast. If you're listening to this and you don't have a pen, pause, go find a pen and go back about two or three minutes and, and jot down those notes. Cause I feel like Johnny just like gave like a crash course and exactly all the things to be looking for, because what I just learned also, like uh, amongst many things is like, it's not just about the, where are we going to end the number right now, but it's all of the data you just described will help you be a better strategic planner, right? So you know how many people to, uh, you know, for raising quotas or changing quotas, how and why, right? Headcount joint, all those things. You, you kind of take forecasting away from just the, where will we land on our number and really elevated it to, to the next level. I mean, the whole reason we do this is to enable planning, right? To enable strategic or tactical pivots, right? Strategic being long-term, tactical being short-term. So for example, with COVID, right? We were very quickly able to isolate which products are working well in the market, and which products are not working well and shift our plans to focus on, we actually created a new category for them called digital doorway products. So products that mean that a physician doesn't have to actually go into a skilled nursing facility to deliver care. Obviously, those things intuitively, you think, okay, those would be attractive, right? But we had data to prove that those were actually starting to sell much more frequently than the others. We took that data and then we say, let's apply focus to those products. So, you know, they were naturally selling better than other products. Now let's apply focus to those products, right? And create actual campaigns and structured programs around that. As a result, we were able to get significantly larger bookings from those digital doorway solutions. And those were kind of a key contributor to our success this year. So it enables insights like that. It also on a very simple level, like, you know, anyone who works in sales know you, you have an army, right? You're trying to deploy your troops where it makes sense to deploy them. If you see, for example, gaps in a certain region and surpluses in another region, you know that your army can be deployed to ultimately achieve the goal. You're not worried that a, a gap here doesn't have a surplus over there to cover it. But if you see gaps all around, now you know where to go to fill those gaps, right? If there's a gap, for example, in enterprise sales, right? Are we seeing any goodness in, for example, the Western region sales that we can accelerate to close that gap? It just enables that kind of decision-making. So you can see a little bit into the future and make decisions about it. I got to ask the question because I asked for percentage for phase one, 20% variance. F phase two was 15%. You just walked us through like human in the loop, machine uh, machine based as well. What what variance are you at at that point? Or if that's today, what's that forecasting accuracy? So we have a symbol for it. 3%. 
Wow. For folks on not watching the video, 3% variance. Well, because my now I feel dumb because my next question was going to be what's in the future? Like, you know, if you have, you know, the magic wand question, what would you solve now? But now it's almost like, do you even bother trying to get closer than, than 3%? Because I feel like that's pretty much the gold, the gold standard, if not uh, whatever's above that, the platinum standard. So when I say 3%, the metric I use is the standard. So that's a quarterly forecast accuracy. So on day one of the quarter, we predicted how that quarter would end with 97% accuracy. I think the next step that would be really helpful to us is to be able to drill down into how each month within the quarter plays out, right? That we are still not as close on. So we're about 88%, so 12% off on how each individual month uh, ends up. That's when we're predicting each month's close 90 days before that month happens, right? That's how we measure that. So 90 days before, you know, if we're like, if we're talking about we're sitting in January, we're trying to predict how April is going to finish. There, there's still room for improvement. So on the aggregate in the quarter, we're very strong. And you're right that we are within the range on best in class. It's just getting down to that monthly. It's also, you know, going down and really slicing deep. How did we hit each product? How did we hit each geography, right? We're not there yet. We haven't done that level of onion peeling yet to see if every single metric we have is actually being met with really high forecast accuracy. We just know the aggregate numbers being delivered accurately. I think a lot of the folks who are listening are going to be um, in various phases of their journey along that forecasting route where some are more manual and some are trying to automate and maybe some are close to where you are today. What recommendations would you have for folks who are thinking about automating their forecasting and, and getting to that more precise, accurate number? So what I would recommend is don't roll it yourself. I had to roll it myself because I wasn't able to secure budget to invest with a partner. The reason I say that is because it's very difficult and I'm not like patting myself on the back. I'm just saying it takes up a ton of your time as someone who leads operations. It takes up a ton of your time working with your operations analysts that you could probably better deploy in other ways, right? So it's like when I'm talking with my boss, he says, is it taking up too much of your time? I said, no, I'm just working way too long because the time you take to spend doing this during the day, you know, you've got to make up with other things in the evenings and the weekends, you know, sometimes like that to, to make sure you're back on track with all the other key priorities. So secure budget for it, right? You know, it's just something, you know, just a quirks of working, right? I, I did the business case, you prove out the ROI, competing priorities in the business, budget goes somewhere else, right? Make the case and keep making the case to invest in technology because other people have solved this problem, right? There are vendors out there who have revenue operations platforms that do something similar. So if you can't avoid rolling your own, try to avoid rolling your own. If you can't avoid rolling your own, work with a data scientist. I'm not a data scientist. I'm an amateur data experimenter. I don't know what you would call that, right? Work with a data scientist who can do this in a much more sustainable way. So you can contract with a data scientist, whatever, right? If it's a cheaper, if it's a cheaper buy than investing in the revenue operations platform. But really, as, as although my forecast accuracy is, is very good, the process to get there still requires a lot of a lot of maintenance of the code, running it each month, et cetera. Like the process doesn't take very long. It takes a half hour, but it's a half hour every month where I would wish I would have a revenue operations platform where I could just click every single day, what does the next 90 days look like? That's something I can't do today. It's still a still a cut in time, right? So I'm happy with what we've accomplished, but definitely investing in technology would be my next move. And I would suggest that be the first move for someone looking at this. It's always great to get that feedback and 
you know, recommendations from someone who's been through this entire process. It's like almost like guidance you're giving yourself, uh, you know, a couple of years into it. Like, what do you wish you knew back then? So um, that that's uh, great, great uh, recommendations there. So, John, what final advice would you have for our revenue leaders who are listening? I think the only thing I would add is for anyone who's an operations leader or for working in operations, never work on five-year plans, right? I think that's what a lot of people get killed on is they're trying to do something truly amazing that's going to take five years. Yes, you have to have your five-year plan. You have to have this is what excellent looks like, and that's what I'm working towards. Every day, try to make an improvement, even if you have to hack in that improvement in the short term. Make sure you're constantly delivering some kind of incremental value to the business. Because I know a lot, you know, a lot of colleagues work in operations. They start getting in trouble because just the length of time it's taking for them to deliver the value, it's stretching out a bit too long for the sales leaders who want to consume that value. So whatever you can do to return time back to your sales leaders, back to your sales reps, with the exception of probably rolling completely from scratch your own forecast model, right? Invest in technology if you can, right? But even investing in technology, that's a shorter journey, right? That's a shorter journey than saying, I'm going to, you know, get a whole data science department together and we're going to have our own model that's just as good as what a revenue operations platform does, right? Try to find those quick wins. Try to find ways to make the process better as quickly as possible while always working towards that ultimate goal. John, you have made it to the final round uh, it's not going to be as hard as writing that book on uh, medieval, I want to say tax evasion. I know that's not <laughs> what it was, but that's where my brain went. Um, but we have the same question we ask all of our guests, which is, how would you describe sales in one word? Uh, endurance. I would agree. That is true. That is very true. <laughs> Especially as you talk through all the phases, uh, phases of forecasting and all the things that went into it. But John, I want to thank you. I feel like this was a great crash course in forecasting accuracy. And I truly enjoyed hearing your story and the phasing that you went through. Because I know everyone listening surely identifies with one of those phases, probably one of the first two. Uh, so I can only imagine how many notes uh, our listeners uh, wrote down. So I want to uh, thank you again for sharing your time and expertise with us on Reveal. Thank you for having me. If you want to learn more about how revenue intelligence and Gong forecasts can help you achieve your goals, head over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard today, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening.